Okay, now we'll go into the uh, second part, which is our exposition of Deuteronomy. In other words, what is the message of Deuteronomy? We'll start at the beginning of Deuteronomy in first part, first chapter. Remember I said that the structure of Deuteronomy follows the structure of that uh, Suzerain Vassal Treaty form. Okay, now you will see that in matching and true true and false, and on quizzes. That's something you need to be familiar with. Learn that vocabulary. There's a preamble here which just introduces us to the main parties. That's the first five verses of the first chapter. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on the side of the Jordan, the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf, between Paran, Kofel, Laban, Hezeroth, and Dizahab. These are locations on the east side of the Jordan. It's 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. After he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt at Ashtaroth in Edrach. So you see the preamble just summarizing where we are, who's writing, what's going on, orients us to what's happening. And we learn, first of all, that throughout the book, Mount Sinai is going to be referred to as Mount Horeb. Mount Sinai will be referred to as, as Mount Horeb. Verse 2, it's 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Why the names? Many places have dual names. I'm not sure why you have Horeb emphasized here in, in, as opposed to Sinai and other places, but many many places have have um, sort of have dual dual names. The second thing to note is the author's attention on chronological and geographical details. He's very specific about where we are. He's very specific about how many days' journey it is. And this isn't the kind of uh, attention to detail that you would find in an allegorical uh, work. He's, he's trying as best he can, using every tool of language he can, to indicate this is something that's happening in a real-time uh, space-time event. It's geographically located. It's temporally located. This is a historical book. Then we get the next section that comes in, uh, the historical prologue from 1.6 to 4.49. He goes through the covenantal history of how uh, the history of what God has done uh, for them and how God has provided for them and protected them. He goes back to Sinai, verse 6, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this, mount, uh, this mountain. It's time to leave. And in verse 8, God says, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. Now you see, remember back in Genesis, I spent so much time talking about the Abrahamic covenant. What are the three parts of the Abrahamic covenant? Land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. So when we get to 
Deuteronomy, you get to uh, Exodus, you get to Numbers, you get to Deuteronomy, and it talks about the land. What land are we talking about? Talking about the same land God promised Abraham. He told him where the boundaries were. He laid it all out. He told him who the peoples were who dwelt there. This isn't a symbol for paradise. See, covenant theology, covenant theologians come along and say, yeah, this is, this is symbolic for paradise. And so what they're going to do is it's like a shell game. They're going to, they are a bait and switch. They're going to start with one thing and try to slip in something else and rather than deal with a literal, uh, literal interpretation here. If you tried to pull this on your credit card, you would be in trouble. But of course they, they, they do that. Um, and this is the land which God swore to your father. So how how much more specific and precise uh, can he be? Uh, we get down to uh, verses 15 through 16. Moses then uh, reviews how he organized the people for effective leadership and to accomplish the various tasks. Uh, you get down to verse uh, 32, from 19 on down to 32, there is a review of the failure at Kadesh Barnea. It was a failure to trust the Lord. It wasn't because they didn't have military training. It wasn't because their military commanders had not gone through uh, West Point or any other kind of military training school. It wasn't that they were rookies. It wasn't that they were lacked numbers. There were certain there were about six hundred thousand soldiers. It wasn't because they lacked the latest technology. It's there's a there is a spiritual element in the equation. See, this is something else. As we were talking during the break, this is something else modern man misses: is that we operate so much on a rationalistic, empirical, scientific uh, uh, b- basis of knowledge that we don't factor in there's a, there, is a, there is a spiritual, uh, in, uh, unseen, invisible issue that's going on because we do live in God's world. But see, when you have uh, a secular power, you see this in Europe, you see it here, and their presupposition is there is no God this isn't God's world. This is why the creational evolution debate is, um, is so important. That if you have a person over here who, who doesn't believe in that there's a God, doesn't believe that there's any kind of moral accountability, doesn't believe that there's any plan or purpose to history, which is where most people are. You know, if there's no plan or purpose to history then there's no plan or purpose for the details of history. And guess what you are? You're a detail in history. So if there's no plan and purpose to the details of history, then there's no plan and purpose for you, and you're just a product of chance. You don't have any meaning and purpose in life. You're just a product of of raw chance. Um, So how does that make you feel when you're 15 years old and you've got no... Reason for being alive. It does. You don't matter. You're just a product of chance. You're just an accident in the universe. People tell children that. Well, that's what 
evolution is, and don't you think 15-year-olds aren't smart enough to figure that out? I'm an accident. Everything, that's all evolution is. The only reason there's anything is because of these accidental, pure chance things that happen. So you're just a product of chance. You're, that means, that's just another way of saying you're just an accident. There's no purpose for your life. So you go in and you're learning history from somebody who says, well, there's no purpose to history. Well, it doesn't take a whole lot of brain cells to figure out there's no purpose to history. There's no purpose to what I'm doing. There's no purpose for me. And then, you know, why shouldn't I go get some guns and shoot everybody in school? Because the only way I'm going to have meaning and value in life is to go out and make something happen, make a name for myself. Then then I will somehow, and that's called existentialism. But um, <coughs> So the the issue is at Kanesh Barnea, they fail to trust God. They're, they're not factoring in the divine element in the victory. They're looking at it totally in terms of the logistics and the number of people and the fortified cities, and they're saying, we can't do it. And they're not trusting God. Uh, that's, and that's how that affects decision-making. You know, are you recording this? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and that, that, happens, <laughs> that happens again and again and again. And if, 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 you're, not, if you're living in a world, if, if you're over here and you're living in a world where there's no God and there are no moral absolutes and there's no ultimate accountability... Is that reality or is that unreality? Reality. What do we call people who live in a in a world of their own mental invention? Psycho. <laughs> you got it. And we're producing a whole generation of psychotics because they're living in a world of man's invention, not the world that God made and has described for us. And so that's why... As we get further, have gotten further and further away from the Protestant Reformation, we've gotten further and further away from a culture that basically believes in the truthfulness of the Bible, then we live in a culture where those who believe in the truthfulness of the Bible become more and more separated and different from those who don't. And so we, we have this fragmentation going on, which has come to be known in our society as culture wars. Why do we have these culture wars? Because there are large segments of our culture who think it is wrong to make decisions. And I can think of a, a, a Roman Catholic senator from Massachusetts who has said this from the Senate floor that when he was interviewing a Supreme Court justice. Are you going to let your religion influence the way you make decisions? Yes. Better. If he's not, what kind of religious belief is it? Well, we don't know what kind of religious belief he has. It doesn't affect anything. There's no religious belief there. But see, we live in a world that wants to distance itself, isolate itself, um, insulate itself from the justice of God. And as Paul says in Romans 1, to, 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 to... completely suppress the, the truth. And the more you live on the basis of a lie, what's going to happen? The truth is the truth. 
well, you're going you're to have fragmentation. You're, you're gonna, things are going to fall apart. You're going to make bad decisions. And that's what happened to the Jews at Kadesh Barnea. They weren't trusting God. They rejected what He had revealed. And so they made bad decisions and suffered the consequences. The result was that only Joshua and Caleb were allowed to enter the land. Then we get to the second point. And Moses re- rehearses their, the desert years, the years in the wilderness in chapter 2. 2 down to 23 summarizes those 38 years until they finally come to, after 38 years in verse 14, they come to cross over uh, and head up around uh, Moab. And then he describes the various events that took place as they uh, went around Seir, Moab, and Ammon. Then starting in verse 20, about verse 24, he starts describing uh, how they conquered the Transjordan area. They, first of all, they did battle with Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan. This is described from 2.26 to 3.11. The defeat of Og. Notice verse 11. For only Og, the king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. In the Hebrew there is Rephaim, not Nephilim, but Rephaim. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. And there's uh, a certain amount of debate, legitimate debate in the Hebrew, that that's not talking about a bedstead, it's talking about his coffin. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It's not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon. Nine cubits is its length. Now, how much is nine cubits? The cubit's 18 inches. Thirteen and a half. Thirteen and a half feet. Well, that's how long his coffin had to be, so he must have been pretty close. And four cubits wide. That's six feet wide. Yeah, he'd be the whole front line for the New York Giants. Uh, hold on now with that New York Giants. <laughs> They had a big night last night. Just the wrong team. Okay, yeah. move on. Yeah, God's team. You know why they have a hole in the top of Texas Stadium? That's so God can watch his team play. <laughs> well, he didn't help them last night. That's right. Okay, so from, from 224 down to 329, there's a rehearsal about uh, what's going on here? I have a fill in the blank there under 2C. The Transjordan means across the Jordan or the territory on the east side of the Jordan. This is now the territory of Jordan, the uh, Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And then under 3C, three of the tribes of Israel are going to settle east of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Nevertheless, just because they conquered their what's going to be their homeland, God said that they still had to fight with the armies on the when they went into the promised land 
and until the conquest was completed. Now we're going to start getting into the concept of holy war. I'll deal with it more in Joshua. But notice that holy war was selected. It wasn't against Moab and Ammon. It's only against the Canaanite tribes. Another thing we'll note with holy war is holy war was limited in time. It was only during this period of history. There is no more holy war after uh, this period of history. The last, there's there's one uh, one, um, exception, and that's when Saul is told to defeat the Amalekites in 1 Samuel. But that goes back to this period. They, They didn't finish off the Amalekites. God promised them that he would. And Saul was to kill every man, woman, and child. Did he do it? No. No, he didn't do it. And God said that was disobedience, it was rebellious, and rebellion was like the sin of witchcraft. Why is rebellion like the sin of witchcraft? Hmm? It's rebellion. That's, a, that's what Satan did. He rebelled against God. That's the essence of, of um, what Satan did. Okay, 4C, in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, the emphasis was on Israel's role in taking the land. In Deuteronomy, the emphasis is on God's role in taking the land. God is going to provide for them. God is the one who is going to uh, give them victory. Deuteronomy 3.22 says, You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Now that's, I've heard people quote this as a promise. Okay? Now, one of the things you have to understand when, you're, when you find a verse in Scripture that somehow resonates with you is you have to ask, is this, is this a promise? Who is, who is speaking here? You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Who is Moses. speaking? Moses. Moses is speaking. To whom is Moses speaking? Israel. Israel. What is the context? What's the historical context? What's what's happening here? They're getting ready to rumble. They're getting, they're getting ready to go into Canaan and execute God's command of holy war on Canaan. So is this a universal promise or is this a time bound promise? It's time bound. It's, it's not to every believer in all time. Now, you can find other passages in the New Testament, other promises that support this, but you don't go take this out of context and then to make it apply to you today. And we have to be very careful of that when we're dealing with Old Testament promises. So the Canaanites were totally wiped out, right? They, no, they, they, they were supposed to be. I thought it said in that they had totally... They were. They didn't. That was a problem. They they, they, they they started off and they and then they left some in the land. It's kind of like um, uh, we'll get into this in Joshua, but I compare. Uh, there, there's a spiritual application here, and that is that when we get saved, we're involved in spiritual warfare, and we're to take every thought captive for Christ. Well, what happens is we start off enthusiastic and well. And we take all the thoughts that we know are immediately self-destructive captive for Christ. But then we start to kind of peter out when we get to those favorite thoughts, those areas that we're more comfortable with, that we're less 
less willing to deal with. You know, we don't take out all the enemy. We just take out the ones that we think are the worst, and then we just sort of compromise. That's what they do. Speaking of spiritual warfare, I mentioned this at the break. I brought in some copies of my book on spiritual warfare that I wrote about 10, 12 years ago. So if anybody's interested, they're uh, $12. So if anybody's interested, you can uh, see me later. Uh, Be careful how you use Old Testament promises that look to see who's speaking, to whom are they speaking, and is there something, some event happening there that this is specifically related to. Okay, then we, yes? Hmm? You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. That would be a promise that they take to the bank when they're going into the land. God is going to fight for us. It's not up to me. It's up to God. I can just relax. And the battle is the Lord's. Now, there's a, there's a principle there that on a passage like this that we see that's reiterated over and over again in Scripture, and that's what we can utilize and claim with God, is that God is the one who fights for us. God is the one who is our advocate. And so you can take that principle, you can extrapolate that from the from this verse, and you can link that with other other passages because you see this principle over and over again. David says about Goliath, "The battle is the Lord's." Kind of these things. In fact, what's interesting sometimes in the New Testament is that that's what the writer of the New Testament does is he goes back and he he. he links these things together and builds a case. Now, God, in the past you did this for them. You did this here and you did that there. Therefore, since I am your child also in a different kind of battle, you should do the same thing for me. See, that you see that in the Scripture. It's called theological deduction and reasoning. But you have to make sure your premises are correct. So what happens, what you get with a lot of, uh, 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 a certain number of of people is they do that in an illegitimate manner. But it's it's great. Acts chapter, I think it's Acts Acts chapter 5 or 6, where the people are praying for John and for Peter, and they've been arrested. And this isn't when Peter's in jail later on, but John and Peter are arrested in Acts 4. The church comes together and they pray and they're quoting from some Old Testament passages. You go back and you read those Old Testament passages, you realize how much they thought about these, these, the context of those, those statements as they put them together to build the case. And you see, that's what prayer is sometimes, is saying, okay, God, let, let me build a case for why this is a valid prayer. Moses does that when God says, okay, I'm going to kill everybody. <laughs> Moses says, no, wait a minute. You made a promise back here with the Abrahamic covenant. And then, and he puts it together. He builds a case like a lawyer. That's what God wants us to do with his word. But you have to know it and you have to interpret it right. You come to God and you say, well, you know, I think this means that. And, you know, and you got, it's bad interpretation. God's going to kick you right out of the throne room. <laughs> You know, don't, don't be trying to make God say what he didn't say. Okay? In chapter 4, Moses summarizes the, uh, the covenant 
in those 43 uh, verses. First point. That's the first point. Let's see. I haven't got to it yet. I'm getting ready. The command to listen or hear now introduces the practical application from the history of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. That's 1C. What's happened is he's, he's rehearsed how God has been faithful in giving them victory over the various enemies. And now he says, now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments. In light of what God has done for us, this is how we should live. The statutes, uh, the term statutes also rendered decrees in some translations refers to universal principles or laws. The term judgments, uh, also sometimes translated by the word laws, refers to case law. A universal principle is thou shalt not murder. Okay, it's a universal principle. A case law says, oh, in the, in the event that uh, a person's uh, ox kills a, 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 a slave, then you should do this. You kill the ox. I see that's a case law. It's, it's giving you an example. Most... Uh, uh, the Mosaic law is, is based on case law. And case law gives you examples. It's not exhaustive, but it is giving you enough uh, analogous material to where you can then apply it to other situations that come up. That's the concept of case law. Third point, Israel's missionary mandate is described in chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. Therefore, be careful to observe them, that is, the statutes and ordinances. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. See, peoples, the nations, the goyim, are going to be watching you. Say, this is your wisdom and your, your this, referring to this obedience of yours, is, is your testimony in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, what are they going to say when they hear the Mosaic Law? See, some people, we have a tendency to look at the Mosaic Law through the lens of its distortion by the Pharisees. Okay? But what God says here is when all the nations around you, the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Hittites and the Canaanites, when these people hear this law, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Wow. What Israel was going to be an island of freedom and prosperity in a world where the, the governments were gods and the people were slaves. And Israel was situated on the crossroads of the ancient world. All the trade routes went right through Israel. That meant when all the caravanners, the truckers of the ancient world, brought their caravans through Israel, they would go back and say, you're not going to believe the country I saw. They have one God, and it's not the king. And the king is subordinate to the God. And they have real freedom, and they have respect for private property. The people own the property, not the king. And they have, they have freedom, and they have uh, a, a law system that is not based on 
on just doing what's best for the king and and there's happiness. These are a wise one. That would be their testimony. This was their missionary mandate was that the world would watch them. In the New Testament, we don't have a nation. We have Christians who are sent to the nations. See, it's a reversal. In the Old Testament, everybody was to watch Israel, and that would be their witness. But in the New Testament, there's no nation. We get to, that's why you see there's a difference between Israel and the church. We're not the same. They would go on, the Gentiles would go on to say, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are, are in all this law which I said before you this day? So this is the missionary mandate of Israel. And then in 425 to 30, Moses again warns them to avoid idolatry. This is, of course, what would end up destroying them. Notice in verse 25, he says, When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly. He didn't say if. He said when. And then he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. What does he mean by that? Is that just a nice little phrase? Or does he mean something more than that? See, this is part of that Susan Vassal tree form. He's calling on real witnesses, just like when you go down to the uh, 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 notary. You have to have a witness for your signature. You sign a will, you sign any legal document. It's got to be notarized. There have to be witnesses to that. That's what this is. It's a legal document. They're witnesses. Who is he talking about heaven, meaning the the physical space of heaven? Or is he talking about who lives in the heavens? Who lives in the heavens? The angels. The angels. So there's angelic witnesses to this legal document. He calls upon the earth. Who inhabits the earth? The people, the human race. So he's calling upon all of God's creatures, those who live in the heavens and those who live on the earth, to witness this document. This is a legal document. God is, is exposing himself to every creature to, to give evidence of his faithfulness to man. Now, why in the world is God doing that? To show honor to We'll have to answer that question eventually, but that's something you need to be rest, thinking about. So would this section predict this section predicts disobedience, removal from the land, and the eventual fulfillment of the covenant. See, he says in verse 27, I'll, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. There you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor even smell. From there you will seek the Lord your God. You will find him if you seek him with your heart and with all your soul. When you are in your distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, that's the latter days of Israel. The latter days of Israel, remember this, the latter days of Israel are different from the latter days of the church. The latter days of the last times of the church began when? Apostolic age. Paul says, in these last days. The whole church age is the last day. So you have last days related to the church, and you have last days related to God's plan for Israel because they're two, they're two distinct groups and they're on two different tracks. Excuse me. 
Yeah. Um, the NIV uh, says the presupposition is on after you after you've had children and grandchildren and after you've lived in the land for a long time, then it says if you become corrupt. It was not predetermined that they did. How might NIV be well, I'd have to look at that because I usually refer to the NIV as an NIV interpretation. Not, it's not a good translation. It's, it, it's one of my favorite translations to hate. But I'll, I'll look. I'll, hmm? Yeah, I, I don't use NIV. Be, I, I have one, one day if we have time. I can tell you why I don't, because it, translations, translations are, and there's a chart down there in the bookstore, and it will talk about two extremes, the more, the more precise, which is called, which is a much more rigid translation to, to a paraphrase over here, okay, and see, King James and NASB are over here. NIV is over here, and the Message and the Living Bible are way over there. And there's a number of places where the NIV just uses words that are completely out of, out of whack. Okay, let me look at this in verse 25. Numbers 6. That's actually Numbers, where are we? 425? 425. Okay. 425. It's interesting. 26 doesn't say, I will call heaven and earth. It says, I call heaven and earth. So yeah. It's tricky. See, the first word here, you, I know you can read this. Huh. See this first word right here? I can see it. Yes. You, you can see. See? <laughs> it's the same word. See, you can see that, that, that this is the same word. Now, what does it mean? Okay? That word means, let's look at the dictionary, that, for, or when. Okay? So, then you would translate it, when you beget children and grandchildren. Not out. Not, if it was if, it would be the Hebrew word e. Okay, that's not what a question was. Okay. Okay, what... Because it says after you have children, I understand that. That means when. After, after children, not, not children yet. and grandchildren, and you and have lived in the land a long time. My question is on the phrase, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol. Well, well, I'm making a million, so we're going to become corrupt. That's our nation. Yeah, when you beget children and grandchildren, and have grown old in the land, and act corruptly. And act corruptly. So you, you keep getting this uh, a, a vav there that, um, that, that repeats that. It's an ongoing action. When, when, and then, and then, and then. Um, so that's the idea. Okay, let's, um, let's move on a little bit. All right. Where are we? Okay, so the section the section predicts disobedience, removal from the land, and eventual fulfillment of the covenant. See, you come in here, you could say, 
Wait a minute. God didn't bring them back. And now you say that, 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 that well, Israel's no longer God's people because they rejected Christ as Messiah. So they didn't really have any security in that contract, did they? Well, then how can you argue for eternal security of your salvation? If God broke his word to Israel in the Old Testament, why would can God break? See, this is what Paul gets to. What's the last verse in Romans 8, 38 39? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor power nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, well that sounds good, Paul, but, but, but I'm a Jew and I'm being kicked out of the land and God is seems like He has forgotten me how can you say nothing can separate me from the love of God? Seems pretty separated right now. And so Paul goes into Romans 9 and Romans 10, Romans 11. That's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 try to do. Show that God's treatment of Israel today is consistent with his justice. And Romans 11 ends with the promise that God will redeem them and bring them back to the land. That's the whole structure there. God is going to be faithful to His promise in the Old Testament. Just because you are not in the uh, you, not not in the uh, related to the root right now, you've been cut off. Doesn't mean you're permanent. There will be a you will be regrafted in in Romans 11, and God will fulfill His promise. So, okay, let's go to the next section: the stipulations. Stipulations. Now, this section from 444 to 2619 follows the standard form of the ancient suzerainty vassal treaty form. After we've had the historical prologue, and now the obligations of the vassal is given. The obligations are given. There are two parts. The first part gives the general laws, and this is from 444. Now this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel from 444 down through 533. And then you have the great commandments and warnings in six, chapters 6 through 11. And then the second part gives uh, specific laws which the vassal nation needs to obey. So let's just get through over a couple of these and let's talk about a couple of things. The essence of the law summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, that is to respect His authority and obey it, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That defines, that's appositional in that sentence. To love your God. How do you love Him? By serving Him in all your ways. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth and all that is in it. So He has the right to uh, demand this of you. Okay, so in terms of the basic outline here, I just want to hit a couple of points here. Most of this, there's a couple of fill-in-the-blanks here I want to give you to make sure you have that. What we have to understand here is that um, 
the law here, this is God's instruction, the law, which is the Hebrew word Torah. We think of Torah primarily as law, but the root meaning of Torah is instruction. God is teaching you how to live the right way in His creation. He made it. Here's the rule book. If you violate the rules, things will fall apart. That's a 1D. And then uh, 2D, Deuteronomy is not a covenant, but the renewal of a previously made covenant. It's not a new covenant. It's a renewal contract. 3D, the Ten Commandments were given to a people that were already redeemed. Always remember that. It's given to them as redeemed, showing, telling how a redeemed people was to live. So it's not given as a means to justification. Justification is by faith alone. But what Deuteronomy is saying, now that you're redeemed, if you really want to experience the blessings that God has for you, you need to be obedient. Is that renewal of the law? It's a... 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 Of that verse in Deuteronomy 12. But that's where we get the title. It's not a second law. That's the point I made. It's not a second law. It is a, it is a, this is a renewal ceremony that God has entered into this contract. Your parents all died off because they were disobedient. Now I'm reminding you of your covenant obligations under the law. And so it's going to close like a sermon does with a, with a, Mandate, choose whom you're going to serve. Are you going to, I said before you, life and death, which you're going to serve. I've listed for you the Ten Commandments, just in case you miss it and you've never identified them. <laughs> hey, in today's world, a lot of people don't even know what the Ten Commandments are. Oh, God. Another point of observation under 5D is that the Mosaic Law recognizes the right to private ownership of property, not the government's ownership of your property. That your money is your money, it's not the government's money. Your property is your property, it's not only... There's no property tax in the Mosaic Law. You know why there's no property tax? so that a family can preserve their property and maintain and develop wealth. Because, see, what's happening in our world is that because of property tax, your parents die and leave you property, and now it gets, if it's over a certain amount, it gets taxed at a rate where, where you may not have any income to pay the property tax, and so they take the property. See, this is intrusion. Uh, where the government is taking wealth and not allowing citizens to build wealth and a future. And it's the idea that the government owns everything and you don't. It's not our, I'm not arguing on the case of taxation. Jesus makes, makes it clear, render under Caesar that which is Caesar. But there's some taxes that are... That are yeah. There, there, are some, there are some taxes that promote healthy economic growth because you do have to, the, the government has certain responsibilities and they have to pay for those. And so there is a legitimate basis for taxation, but when you get into property tax, it, it is ultimately destructive of wealth. 
Then the sixth observation I make is that the commandment to not covet is the strongest commandment because it shows that it shows everyone that no one can ever keep the law. That's what hung Paul up. He thought, you know, I thought I was doing pretty good on everything until I read Thou shalt not covet, Romans seven. Then he realizes that he, that he, even arrogance, pride over keeping the law was <coughs> coveting that approbation. Okay, let's um, chapter six goes through uh, key things. We've already talked about the Shema. This is two E. Deuteronomy six. Four is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. It's called the Shema. Hear, which means to hear, and it's basic to Judaism. Then in the next verse, uh, next point, 3E, I reiterate what we already talked about, that the uh, fact that God is one there is not a Unitarian monotheism. Think about this. If, if I'm God, let's say I'm Allah. Let's, let's, let's start with a Christian biblical example. I'm God. I exist in three persons. Part of my essence, my very core of my essence, is I'm love. There's nothing exists but we three. Who do I love? Father loves the Son. Son loves the Spirit. Spirit loves the Father. We have a society. There's three of us. We can love and be loved throughout all of eternity. We don't need anything else. Okay? Now, I am Allah. Just me. (laughs) Ain't nothing else out there. Let me try to convince you that I'm love. Who do I love? Yourself. I can't just love myself. I've got to have a real object of love for me to really be loved. So I have to create something. Well, if a God is dependent upon his creation to be who he is, he is not a God. Or he doesn't really have love. Now, think about that. If you don't have a basic society in God of love, how can you understand love within multiple persons? Marriage is your most basic society. Family. See, if you don't have a God who is love, all you have is a hierarchy. That's why in Islam, the lowest thing on the rung is the wife, the woman. The highest thing are the males. Homosexuality is rampant in Islam. I was just talking with a friend of mine who came back from Iraq and he said they were out there in the tanks and they were looking with their uh, heat uh, heat sensors. They'd catch the men out there in the trees all the time. It is a big thing in, in Islam. Why? Because the women are there only to produce children. The men are the real power base. Islam is rampant. They won't admit it, but oh, it, 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 that's one of their uh, it's a reality. In in um, in in the Buddhism of of Japan, 
In the Buddhism of Japan, you have reincarnation. If you are a Japanese male, what is the one thing that you do not want to ever come back as? It's the, a woman. Uh, yeah. Yeah. See, see, in a non-biblical religion that doesn't have a biblical view of the Trinity where you have distinctions, role distinctions between Father, Son, and Spirit, but genuine equality, you have no basis for real society. You only have the basis for a top-down, dictatorial, tyrannical uh, type of operation, which is what you have in Islam and, and uh, other, other religious systems that are consistent with their presuppositions. Bible's pretty deep, isn't it? We just don't think deeply anymore about these things. We just want to go to, like we're talking at the break, we just want to go to church and feel and emote. We don't want a pastor who's going to get up there and really probe the depths of intellectual thought and society with the Word of God so that the Word of God addresses everything from calculus to chemistry, from marriage to music, from art to anthropology. You know, the Bible addresses everything because God made what? Everything. So if you address the Bible as something that only addresses spiritual life and salvation, then you've truncated God. God is no longer the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them because he doesn't speak to anything except just my relationship with him. See how self-centered we are. 4E, uh, to love God does not mean to have certain feelings about God, but to what? Obey. Obey. But to obey Him. Disobedience cancels love. Thus, love is not an emotion, but a mental choice or commitment of obedience to God. If you're disobedient, God still loves you. Yeah, but you're not loving God. No. <laughs> Yeah. So that's why Jesus says, "If you love me, keep you keep my commandments." How do you know if you love God? Saint Deuteronomy says the same thing. I mean, it's consistent throughout the scriptures because love is. Faithfulness, it's loyalty, it's obedience. But everybody is disobedient somewhere, so... That's right. That's right. And disobedience is, is an act of disloyalty, and it is not loving at that time. When your children disobey you, is that an act of love? No. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get across here, is let's challenge our understanding of what love is. Let's not be forced into the mold of thinking about love the way Madonna thinks about love or the way, uh, you know, what's his name, John Bradshaw thinks about love or the way, uh, who's the guy who wrote uh, John, what's his name, who wrote Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus thinks about love. Let's think about what the Bible says love is. That's where we start if we're going to have a conversation about love. And if somebody's going to tell me they love me uh-huh. and they're, they're, they're going to want to get married, well, I'm going to want to take some time to talk about, well, what do you think this thing called love is? You just feel real good about me right now? 
You know, you just want to go out and have sex right now? What do you mean by love? Let's, start, let's have a conversation about this before we ever start thinking about getting married. Not real popular then. Okay, chapter 7 gets into the whole concept of uh, holy war, the plan of conquest. God planned for Israel to destroy all men, women, and children. Is that an act of love? No. Yes. I just, I just do that. I, uh. <laughs> See, once again, I come back to the thing is, is our culture teaches us to think about this as this is harsh. This is, this is maybe vindictive. This is, this, how can this be loving? How can the God of the Old Testament, Jesus is a God of love in the New Testament. This Old Testament guy, he's pretty rugged. He's tough. He's mean. I'm saying, well, wait a minute. Maybe we're starting with a man-made definition of love and trying to impose that on God. He doesn't fit it, so we say, oh, he's that's harsh. That's just that's that's wrong. Well, let's start with God and change what we think of as love and kindness, because you see, who's God focusing on here? Who's God focusing on here when He says kill? He's focusing on the Israelites. He's focusing on protecting the innocent and eliminating the harmful. He wants to protect the rights of the victim and not the rights of the criminal. Oh, now how do you think that ought to impact the criminal justice theory? How do you think that ought to impact how you run a prison? How do you think that ought to impact the judicial system? You have a model here from God showing that the emphasis is to protect the, the, the innocent and to eliminate the criminal. Hmm. Okay. How would you defend that? I've got an 11-year-old daughter. She, her favorite word is, and uh, that's the favorite word of a lot of the 11 years old now. It's not fair. It's not fair. Mm-hmm. Where are you getting? Who, who, fair? Ask her, what, what do you mean by fair? Who sets the rules? By determining what's fair and what's not fair. You got to meet Christian on the block and, and they see that they read that when God said, Go in and kill every man, every child, every baby, every, yeah. every dog, every cat, everything that wagons tail, God said, Annihilate. How, how, how can you make them understand that? that is well, go back and say, cool. Okay, this is what these people are doing. They're, they're murderous, they're. Uh, they're, they're, of course, with 11-year-olds, a little difficult because they're sexual perverts. And in gross ways, they are sacrificing their children as burnt offerings to the gods. They are, uh, they have reached such a level of degeneracy that God is saying they're a cancer that has to be removed. So that was God's way of purging the, yeah. the land. Yeah, in order to protect. See, because what happens is that when Israel doesn't fulfill that, God says, you've got to kill them all because if you don't, they're going to influence you and you're going to end up being just like them. And guess what happened? That's exactly what happened. And see, man, in his desire to be kind and generous, operating on a false concept of what that is, is going to let them get off. Let them, oh, we're going to, it's like, 
Like, did y'all hear this report on the news yesterday about one, a couple of the key leaders in that Indonesian bombing in, in Bali? Uh, it was a couple of years ago, where they killed. It was more than that. It was about four or five years ago, where they uh, killed about 200. Got killed in some some bombing. And they let them off. It's Ramadan, and they've been good in prison, so we're letting these guys off scot free. You know, four years in prison and they're out. Terrorists. So this is this is pseudo compassion. This is pseudo love. This is not. Um, so the, the the term for holy war that we find in the scripture is the term ban. It's a translation of the Hebrew word harem, meaning to set something set something apart. This is the only incident of authorized holy war in the Bible. The Canaanites deserved to die for their sin. They weren't basically good. They were basically bad. You know, when you talk to children, this is something to drill into kids from an early age is that people are basically bad, not good. We live in a culture that tries to communicate that we're all basically good. Now, how does that affect your whole view of, of the penal system? Yeah, because you see, in the early, in the early era eras, eras of our country, when people believed everybody's basically bad, I, the, the penal, what does penal mean? Penalty, punishment. The penal system was designed for punishment because it's, it's going to discourage and dissuade people from wanting to go there. But there's a lot of people today, you know, they have a lot better off there than they do outside. I mean, they get colored TV and flat screen TV. Y'all got flat screen TV at home? You know? Yeah, three meals a day, everything. It's not a punishment. It is, what's it supposed to do? Rehabilitate. Rehabilitate. You, you rehabilitate because if they're basically good, they're improvable. If they're basically evil, they need punishment to control within nature. That's right. See, these things all came into prominence in our culture in the middle to late 19th century at the same time. The evolution ideas and, and uh, uh, you know, the Bible isn't God's word. You really can't have uh, uh, God doing miracles and supernatural speaking to you. All these things operate together and gave foundation to what we consider to be our modern culture. Yeah, it's... it's, it's what was holy one? Yeah, eight. Nine. 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 Page eight. Page eight. Here's his nine over there. Mine is eight. Mine's eight, too. Destroy. Yeah. Yeah. It's under 3D, the program of conquest, 7, 1 to 26. 1E is God planned for Israel to destroy all men, women, and children among the seven nations who inhabited the land of Canaan. The term for holy war is the ban, a translation of Hebrew term. 2E, this is the only incident authorized holy war. Uh, Canaanites had continued to rake God and, God and opposed him for generations. I mean, they were evil in the time of Abraham. Abraham didn't want his boy marrying any Canaanites. Isaac didn't want his boys marrying any Canaanites. I mean, they were bad then. God gave them more than enough time to recover. 
as, as a culture. And now it's time for punishment. Uh, next page, summary of Holy War. Summary of Holy War. Holy War is limited in people, geography, and time. It's not like the, the, the Islamic jihad concept is, is a perversion of the biblical Holy War. See, the purpose for a Holy War wasn't to convince people to join the Jews. It was to eliminate them from the earth because of their perversion. It's a, in a sense, it's a picture of the believer's war against sin in his own life. Where to eliminate it, not coexist with it. Too many Christians are coexisting with the sin in their life. They eliminate the, what they believe is the worst part, and then they coexist with the other. That's what happened to the Jews as they started coexisting with the Canaanites, and then they came uh, just like them. Holy War is uh, revealed by God. God set the time. He set the standards. And um, it occurs two more times. It occurs uh, in the, um, out of the Old Testament when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. In Revelation 19, he kills every unbeliever. And then, again, at the end of the millennium, there's a revolution called the Gog and Magog Revolution in Revelation 20. Okay, fourth thing that happens in this chapter is the Hebrews are prohibited from intermarrying with the Canaanites. That's something, you know, I always appreciate my my mother did. I couldn't have a friend. Wow, I got a new friend. Do they believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins? You're not going down there playing with him. You know, I'd say, hey, I met this new girl at school. I knew what was coming. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and I, as a pastor, I've so many parents who never did that, and they come on, what? Little Billy marrying some Catholic. But now the parents are not doing it. That's what I mean. Parents don't do that. You some of them. <laughs> a lot of parents. When you come to my house, that's my first question. A Okay, then we skip down to the bottom of the page, the law of the manna in chapter 8. The law of the manna. Uh, Israel was commanded to remember the wilderness and the provision of manna to remind them of God's faithfulness during times of adversity. The law of the manna related to remembering uh, God's faithfulness during times of adversity. We've got about five minutes to cover the rest of it, so let's. Uh, we need to start hopping along here. Uh, the warning of the broken tablets in chapter nine through ten. The Israel is reminded that the conquest of the Canaanites and the possession of the land was not based on their righteousness. God gave them the land, not because of what they had done, but because of His plan, His desire, His will. God goes on in this chapter to remind Israel of all their sins, rebellions, and failures, their idolatries. Moses then prays to God in chapters 9.25 down to 10.11 and that prayer to God is a pattern for us. How we can pray to God. That talks about how he prayed to God back in Exodus when the, the Israelites had set up the golden calf. So Moses' prayer of intercession is a pattern for us in how to use the Bible to petition God. I talked about that a little bit earlier. 
the basis for Moses' prayer was the Abrahamic covenant. So we understand what God is doing in history. Then chapters 10 and 11, God cha- Moses again challenges the people to total commitment. In there he emphasizes the uniqueness of Israel's God in chapters 10, verses 14 through 19. This is 2D. Uh, he emphasizes God's sovereignty, justice, and love. The basic command throughout this section under 3D, the basic command is to love the Lord and keep His commandments. Love the Lord your God and keep His commandments. Sovereignty, justice, and love. 2D, Sovereignty, justice, and love. God's a sovereign. He rules a nation. He's just in all his dealings, and he is love. He's faithful. Basic command is to love the Lord and keep his commandments. The evidence of love for God is not how you feel, but your dis- but your obedience. Your obedience. And then under 4D, obedience again is the key to enjoying the blessings of the land. Note how many times land occurs here. If you're going to be in the land, you'll be blessed. That's that's the, the framework here. Okay, I'll review those real quick. Basic commands to love the Lord and keep His commandments. The evidence of your love for God is not how you feel, but your obedience. And I left out the next one. Obedience is the key to enjoying the blessings of the land. Then from chapter 12 to 26, we have different uh, commandments, just details. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of things I want to point out. These are really important. Let's, uh, I want to skip the one on worship right now. We've talked about that some already. Uh, chapter 2D is false teachers. 2D is false teachers in chapter 13. There are uh, two tests in the Bible for, for if somebody says, God spoke to me. I'm listening to you. How many people do we hear today say, God spoke to me? Many. Too many. God's not speaking to anybody today. But there are two tests in the Old Testament. Now notice the first test. This has to do with false teachers. If there arises among you a prophet in him, or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. Okay. You've got somebody you watch on TV, and he's claiming a miracle. Now, a lot of people say to me, how do you explain what they do? I don't have to. Whether it is a legitimate miracle or a fraud is irrelevant to the principle of Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13 says he, he, he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. He really healed somebody. He really, truly, prophetically said something would happen, and it happened. Okay? So I'm not talking... It doesn't matter to me whether it happened, it didn't happen, whether you think you got healed or didn't get healed. That's irrelevant in God's plan in the text. Because what happens next is, and he said something. In other words, what's the content of his message? That's what tells you whether he's from God or not. Not the miracle. Because in this scenario, the false prophet or the false dreamer of dreams is 
it's accurately, actively, actually performing a real miracle. And he says, let's go after other gods. See, his message contradicts known canon scripture. And if his message isn't theologically correct, then it doesn't matter how many people he brings out of the grave. It doesn't matter how many people he heals. It doesn't matter how many miracles he's performed. He's a false teacher because his doctrine is heresy. So he can do the act, but what he said. The test is the message, not the miracle. That's right. And see, most people, they think, ah, it's the miracle that makes the message. No, it's the message that tells you whether the miracle is from God or not. And then it goes on, just a minute. In verse 3, it says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is what? Testing. Testing you. God sends the false prophets to test you to see if you're going to be swayed by the emotion, the excitement, the miraculous, or are you, do you have the guts to stick with the message? It's the content of the word that's important, not the miracles and not the manifestations. Yes? So what happens those who sin on TV nowadays, they are preaching Christ, they say there's miracle, this I don't care. I don't know whether they are or not, but I know that Benny Hinn believes that each member of the Trinity is a Trinity in itself, and that's got nine gods, and that's polytheism, and that's heresy. And that you you can look at, you can go through and analyze the teaching of these guys, and they're not biblical. Even if they may say some, some things that are true, Satan frequently says things that are true. Jesus addressed, I mean, Satan addressed Jesus said, if you are the Son of God. He used a first class condition to agree with it, and you are the Son of God. He, he knows a lot of truth. It's not the, you know, if you drink a glass, protein's good for everybody, right? You know, it, it's not the glass of water that's going to kill you, it's, it's that little bit of extra protein from rattlesnake venom that's in the water that, that you have a sore in your mouth and it gets in your bloodstream, that's what's going to kill you. It's not the 99.9% water that gets you, it's that 0.1% cyanide that gets you. See, where where Satan has his greatest success is where his deceptions have the greatest amount of truth. Because it's not the part part of 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 the message that's true that's the issue. It's the part that's erroneous. And most people, I'm taking an example of something I'm going through right now, most people look at a whole page and every sentence on the page is right except for one. And they tend to miss it. And if that one sentence is wrong, then the the argument is fallacious. Okay. Uh, Israel is to live a separate way. Oh, we get into tithing here. Now, I want you to look at tithing very quickly. There were three tithes every year. What kind of government was it? Theocracy. So the tithes were to take care of the government, the priests. The first tithe we saw in Leviticus, that was to support the priests. The second tithe that was taken up uh, every year was for an annual national feast. 
They had a big party, big Fourth of July celebration. Okay? Now think about this one. We need two extremes. Okay? Israel is told that if you obey me, I will bless you. You'll be prosperous. There'll be plenty of water. The, the fall harvest will last. Uh, uh, the spring harvest will last all the way to the fall. Fall harvest will last all the way to the spring. God's going to bless them. So you're, you're, you're obedient to God, and God blesses a nation, and they've got a gross national product that equals $130 billion. 10% of that is $13 billion to go spend on a party. I mean, we've got beluga caviar, and we have got uh, you know, the best champagne, and we've got uh, Lafitte wine, and we have uh, really good uh, single malt scotch, and uh, you know, everything else. I mean, it's just first class everything for a party. Big celebration. You've got prime rib, not not choice, but you've got prime beef. You've got everything. You've got huge vegetables. Now, a couple of years later, hadn't been so obedient. The gross national product is fifty million dollars. We got five million for a party. We're going to Burger King, turkey fried chicken. Now, what are you thinking? Well, what happened? I remember when I was a kid, we used to have big parties, great food, good stuff, the best of everything. Now, man, all we can do is go down to church and fried chicken. It's a spiritual barometer. We're messing up. God's not blessing us anymore. Okay, so every year he gave them a spiritual barometer based on how much they could tie. 10%. Not more, not less. 10% is a tax. And then there was another tax that was taken, a tie that was taken every third year for the poor. Where was the money kept? At the temple, the storehouse. Do we have a temple today? No, the temple's been destroyed. So you can't bring your tithes to the temple like Malachi said. Why? No temple. Where's the temple? The only temple we got today is my body. So if I'm going to bring the tithes to the storehouse, I'm just going to be... Taking it out of one pocket, put it in the other. Right? Yeah, exactly. Watch out, Dr. Now, this always gets to people who go to churches where they emphasize tithing. Tithing was a mandatory giving, but there's another kind of giving. Free will. Free will giver. Mandatory giving went to the state. Free will giving was the gratitude expressed toward God for His grace. When you get into the New Testament, what do you have? Right. Two types of giving, right? Mm-hmm. Render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. Wow. And as every man purposes, where? In his yes. heart. Free will. So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous Cheerful. giver. Cheerful giver. Okay? That's the difference. All right. That's what I teach in my church. That's what I teach in my church. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the church I was in in Connecticut, we didn't even take up a collection. We just had a box on the back wall. And, uh, you know, every week I would mention something about giving, but that was it. You know, we, we spend less than 30 seconds talking about giving. And uh, when I started my ministry, my media ministry, which is based on the same principle, we don't charge for things. On the media ministry, I... Um, have the same principle, that everything's free. People who benefit, gracious to the Lord for it, if they can, 
They'll give and support the ministry. I've never, never had a problem. Never missed a bill. You know, I don't talk about money. I don't, you know. It. Did I tell you all the story about about grace giving? Grace giving. Grace giving. I'll give you. I'll give I, two stories. I got a friend of mine when he was in seminary. He didn't have two dimes to rub together. Was uh, came down to Houston to the pastor of my church and was going to house it for him while he went on vacation with his family. And when the pastor was leaving, he got out of the car and he stopped and he thought, and then he got up, came back up, and he said, George, uh, you got to live here for a couple of weeks. You don't have any money here. And he grabbed out a wad of $100 bills. Out. This was in 65 $100 in is like 1000 now. Peels off $300 bills and says, here. Did I tell you this story? Yeah, yes, yeah. Good story. And, yeah, he said, you know, if you don't learn to accept this, you don't understand grace. That's right. And then the other story was about Jim Myers who said, you know, I wish I'd taken the whole library, but I wasn't grace-oriented enough to take the whole thing. See, we don't understand grace. And because we don't understand grace, we don't understand gratitude. And because we don't understand gratitude, it affects Giving is too many groups that are just, and, and, and whites are the worst. I mean, you go to a Caucasian church. I, I went to a church not long ago, and they paid me $75. <laughs> I went to, to a black church, and they paid me $700. Legalism pays. No. <laughs> but, you know, somewhere there's a, there's a happy medium there that, that we really want to, we, we understand the value of what we just heard. And we want to express our gratitude for it. And, and somehow, and, and, and I just found out, I live over in Spring Branch, and Spring Branch Community Church was on the market for $3 million. And they sold it to a Korean Baptist church for $3 million. You know how many people are in that Korean Baptist church? A hundred. A hundred. And they bought it, they paid cash. Those people know how to give. You know, they're not in hock up to here. That's one reason a lot of people can't give to the church today is because they're in hock. They're paying so much on their credit cards. They've got five credit cards to the max, and, and they're, they're, they've got, they're paying 15% interest on, on their credit cards. They, they're just barely keeping their, their head above water. And they don't have any money to give to the Lord because they're, they've enslaved themselves to their materialistic lust. Well... We, we didn't get to the last part of Deuteronomy. One thing I want to say is when you get to Deuteronomy 28 and 30, it goes, uh, once again, it repeats the, the, the blessings if they're obedient and then the curses. And in the curses, it talks about the fact that they will come upon you, you will go out of the land, but God's going to bring them back. There is a promise of restoration that has not yet been fulfilled. So that means God has a plan for the future of, uh, of Israel. Now let me just kind of briefly look over what's left. Um, there is, on page, let me, let me just say this, on page 12, we get, come to uh, uh, priests and prophets. Priests and prophets, um, chapter 18. Oh, I was going to make this point. Most people don't realize this. When it talks about strong drink in the Bible... That's beer. Most people, when we think of strong drink, they think of vodka. That's a distilled beverage. But we didn't know how to distill beverages until the ninth century after Christ. Uh, it's barley beer. 
I always kind of joke with people, you know, when, when Jesus had to, had to deal with the, the case of the people at the wedding came, he gave them wine. But when God wanted something, he wanted a good cold beer. <laughs> Which what? For a mandatory form of taxation. Yeah, let me go through this. Yeah, 4E tithing was a mandatory form of giving, free will offerings. So I covered all this, I just didn't say it that way. Mandatory form of giving, free will offerings were based on the gratitude of the worshiper. Okay, then what was 2E? I'm sorry. 2E was wine, wine was fermented grape juice, and strong drink was barley beer. Gratitude of the worshiper. Gratitude of the worshiper. You get out to the next page. Uh, the king had to hand copy the entire law, but the point I want to look at again is, is um, un- yeah, was to hand copy the entire law. No, judges were to apply the law, not to interpret the law or revise its meaning. The judge was to apply the law, not to interpret the law or revise its meaning. Polygamy was used to solidify military alliances in pagan cultures. So God prohibited it. Why? Because they didn't need to become allies with pagan cultures. They needed to trust God. So polygamy was never seen as a good thing. It was never viewed as a good thing in the Old Testament. Some people say, well, God let Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob go. Well, Abraham really didn't commit polygamy at all. He had a concubine that's different. Isaac didn't have polygamy. Jacob did because he got tricked. And what you see is as the patriarchs become less and less spiritually inclined, they become more and more likely to act like the pagans around them. Okay? Um, when you get down to chapter 18, priests and prophets, that's your second test. Uh, your second test. God promised that he would raise up a new prophet like Moses. That refers to Jesus Christ. But he also gives the death penalty for, for false prophets. The, death, the first test was, it doesn't matter what the miracle is, if the message isn't consistent, it's a false prophet. The second test is, if they claim to speak for God, then everything, 100%, has to come true. Everything. They can't have one mistake. One mistake in a day, literally, truly, death penalty. God's not going to allow anybody to speak for him. It's not. So, so if that... Two tests were to speak for God. You say, what are the two tests for genuine prophecy? Yeah, you have two, two, two tests. It's got to be consistent with previously given revelation. That's Deuteronomy 13. In Deuteronomy 18, it has to come true 100% of the time. It's right there on the screen. Alright. 100% fulfillment. That's under 3D. Well, I slowed down too much and didn't get a lot of other things covered. That's okay. 
That's the Goel or the family redeemer. All right. Redeemer is a key word there. 